When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There is no one on the street corner standing up, handing out protection or rights or value or dignity. But that is something that as women and a society together that we have to fight for. Welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And Caroline, we just happened to be recording this episode on the fifth anniversary of Lean In. Oh. The book by Sheryl Sandberg, Facebook COO, that has kind of become like the standard of feminist workplace how-tos. Yeah, both beloved and... Behated. And we're not here to behate on Cheryl, <laughs> Caroline, but I still remember sitting on my futon, finishing Lean In, and just thinking like, okay, but how does all this apply if I'm not a Harvard-educated who's who who knows, like, every important person in the world? And that's what we're talking about today. We want to know, what does pink-collar career empowerment look like? You know, for all the women who are doing the caregiving— that buys the Cheryls of the world time to climb the corporate ladder? And why should we as feminists care more about it? After all, more than 2 million folks, mostly women, are nannies, housekeepers, and caregivers in the U.S. And care work is one of the fastest-growing industries out there. Which reminds me, Caroline, of how absent nannies are in Lean In. Even though Cheryl Sandberg hires them, uh, they aren't really portrayed as active people in her life. For instance, at one point she writes, the division of labor felt uneven and strained in our marriage. We hired a nanny, but she couldn't solve our problems. The emotional support and shared experiences that a spouse provides cannot be bought. (laughs) Okay, I mean, talk about some intense job expectations for that nanny. I know. And it's like, at least give her a name if if you are like (laughs) writing your, your marriage on it. But you know, Kristen, after talking to our two guests today, I've got to say, Nannies are kind of my new feminist career role models. Oh, same here. You know, out with Lean In and in with Nanny Up. Let's meet our first guest today. My name is Allison Julian. I'm with the National Domestic Workers Alliance. We Dream in Black, New York, uh, chapter organizer. Allison moved to Brooklyn from Barbados in the 90s when she was a teenager, and like her mother and grandmother before her, she became a nanny. She landed her first job working for a family in Manhattan. And Allison came into the job with plenty of hands-on experience. I'm from an extremely large family. Let's just say I'm 13 of 14 brothers and sisters. You got mine beat. (laughs) (laughs) 
For more than 20 years, Allison nannied 11 different kids from a half a dozen families, and she loved it. I enjoyed playing with Play-Doh, making art, going to the park. How many other jobs could I get to do that every single day? (laughs) So I fell in love with the work that I was doing. But let's be real. Nannying involves a lot more than Play-Doh and swing sets. In most cases, or the best cases, it involves love. Was that in the job responsibilities listed out? I don't think it was a part of the job description. Um... I think it was what, it was a part of my value that I was bringing to the work. I oftentimes don't get to negotiate on the amount of love that I give to the kids that I'm providing for, because there's no way to measure love, right? There's no price tag attached to love. And I feel as a part of doing care work, the love is what is at the center of what workers bring to this amazing work. And it's it's non-negotiable. That emotional labor? Yes. The good stuff. But that labor of love is a big reason why domestic work is so obscenely undervalued. I mean, for ages, we've just been conditioned to see any sort of domestic work or care work as not real work. It's just a natural extension of our maternal instincts or whatever. In reality, for Allison, a typical workday was at least 10 hours long from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And that's not even counting the commute. And for me, um, that was hard because I would have to leave home by 6.30 in the morning in order to get to Manhattan on time. Uh, The day would start with the child waking up, um, oftentimes diaper changes, bottle feed-ins, outings to the park or, um, let's say, activities, music classes, play dates, trips to the libraries, nap times. Um, So I would have to prepare dinner, prepare snacks, and also make certain that laundry is taken care of, toys are tucked away, books are back on the shelf, all the while making sure this child is happy, healthy, safe, fed, and just enjoying their childhood. So on a typical day, when would you make it back home. Getting back home, I would leave work, let's say, about six o'clock in the evening if the parents were on time. Most times they weren't. So I would leave about 6.30 and I wouldn't make it back home until 8.30 or nine o'clock in the evening. And I mean, it's not like Allison was making extra money for all those long hours and the late night travel time. Yeah, overtime was oftentimes not compensated for. So getting home even later and still expected to report back to work on time for the following day. Did you feel at the time um, that you had room to ask for something like that? Or did you get the impression that, no, I can't ask this family for uh, commute money? At first, I didn't feel like I had the room. I was in this place where I couldn't, I didn't feel like I had the power to answer back or I didn't know how to answer back to an employer. Uh, because I saw their whiteness as rightness. Um, And I didn't want to challenge that. But after talking to nannies in the playground or at the library, I recognized that they, some of them, were getting cab fare, and I would bring up those conversations with employers. I kind of started to push the envelope a little bit. And I recognized when I asked or when I told them that I needed cab fare, um, it worked. And that was almost like an opening or an entryway for me to recognize that I have a voice and there was something more that I could do with that voice. 
How did you negotiate pay with the families that you worked with? Are you comfortable talking about how much you were earning at the time? This was back in like 1992. I think I was making about $250 a week. And that was for a 50, 55-hour work week. Um, Yeah, the wages were super low. And how did you guys settle on an hourly rate? Like, did you tell them what you wanted or did they tell you what they were willing to pay? Oh, no. I was a new immigrant, undocumented. You know, you kind of don't really say anything. You don't challenge much of anything. You kind of just say yes and keep it moving, right? So it was really what my employers had proposed. And for me, it was like, okay, $250. I've never seen this kind of money in my, you know, in my hands. So I was really excited to be earning my own money. But yeah, that's the way it worked. Did employers ever try to leverage your undocumented status to kind of put the kibosh on negotiations and stuff like that? Um, I had one experience. Um, I was working with this family out in Brooklyn, and um, the kids got sick with the flu. And of course, I was caring for these beautiful children for a whole week with the flu and, you know, being throwed upon and snotted on and everything, you know, <laughs> the life of a nanny. And of course, I caught the flu. So I was out sick on the Thursday and the Friday. And when I returned to work, my employer, whose parents were also immigrants, had the nerve to say to me, uh, if I'm going to get sick, I should get sick, you know, when I'm not inconveniencing them. And I, I was really appalled by that statement. So my response was, the next time I get sick, I'll pray and ask God to make me sick on a Saturday and a Sunday so that I don't inconvenience you, uh, because I didn't realize that I could negotiate my sickness with God like that. I didn't realize we had a contract for that, you know? Um, And then he said to me, well, you know, you are illegal, was the term. And I looked at him and I said to him, "Um, my documentation was not a concern or it wasn't an issue when you hired me. Don't ever let it be an issue while I'm on this job with you. And that was the only conversation I have ever had with any employers about my status. And for me at that moment, I didn't feel threatened, but I felt like I had to do something. I had to respond to him in that moment. I couldn't just bite my tongue and be okay with it. I had to respond. But I continued to be on that job like two years after, so I guess it wasn't too bad. So, little by little, Allison starts speaking up for herself on the job and becoming a lot less afraid to do so. I remember um, the family on the Upper West Side. This must have been one of my model families. Uh, The mom would say to me, but you don't have a child to go home to. And I had to remind her often, but I have a life. And that's something that I value. Um, Your time is important to you and my time is important to me. Did she get it? When you said you have a life? She did eventually. <laughs> because at that time, my bag would be on my shoulder and I'll be closer to the door. So eventually she recognized that I did have a life outside of um, her kid and outside of her home. Yeah. Allison might not have had kids waiting for her at home, but she did have a weekend side hustle. In what spare time she had, Allison liked to take photos and videos, some just for fun, and other times for weddings and parties. Then one day on the playground... Allison had an activism meet-cute. Ijen came into the park with a bunch of papers, a bunch of flyers. Her goal that day was to reach out to workers to tell them about domestic worker organizing. When, when I met Allison in the park, it was immediate 
in terms of understanding her energy. She has a fire about her um, that is palpable. I was on to her. I was like, okay, whatever this is you're selling, I am buying because this was something I had been talking about since 1992. I had already thought about this enough. I had already wished for this enough. And here it was. She was talking to me about domestic worker organizing. Who is this magical iGen at the park, Caroline? I'm just imagining her like popping out of a tree with <laughs> multicolored flyers. <laughs> I, I imagine that too, and I don't want to be corrected. Uh, but we'll find out the truth right after we take a break. Okay, Kristen, that mysterious woman in the park, the one with all the flyers, mm-hmm. that was Ai-jen Poo. Ai-jen who? My name is Ai-jen Poo, and I'm the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And I'm also co-director of a campaign called Caring Across Generations. So FYI, y'all, uh, Ai-jen won a MacArthur Genius Grant for this work that she's talking about. And, you know, she happened to be Meryl Streep's date for the 2018 Golden Globes. No big deal. The Time's Up Golden Globes? Yes. The National Domestic Workers Alliance that she heads up works to organize, educate, and empower domestic workers. After all, as Ai-jen says, care work makes all work possible. It's incredibly important because it allows for all of us to do what we do in the world, knowing that our loved ones and our homes are in good hands. Ai-jen got started as an activist shortly after graduating college. She volunteered at a domestic violence hotline for Asian immigrant women in New York. She was heartbroken by the stories that she encountered from these women, but they also got her thinking. Why are the cards so stacked against them? And if we actually had programs and systems and an economy that worked for those women and really recognized and rewarded that courage and that hard work, how different it would be for so many of us. In Ai-jen's early days, she spent a lot of time out there pounding the pavement, canvassing, and looking for those invisible people, for nannies and care workers like Allison, who might be interested in the work she was doing. Inviting them to come to trainings and workshops about their rights um, or, you know, workshops about new immigration policies or all the different things that we were we would hold meetings about and sitting in a circle with women and hearing women share their stories and that moment of recognition of I see you and I see that I'm not alone and I see the potential of our power together. So all of this is what ultimately brought Ai-jen to the park that day, where she invited Allison to an educational meeting for domestic workers. There'd be other nannies there, information about immigration and fair wages, and opportunities to get involved. And Allison was pumped. I remember walking into the meeting. It was in Brooklyn. Um being nervous as hell because I did not know what this woman was bringing me into. But if her name is Ai-jen, you should trust her. Um, I walked into the room and I saw a bunch of women who looked like me. They were mainly Black women, Latina women. And of course, Ai-jen being an Asian woman, I was like, okay, this this is kind of cute. I can get with this. 
And I remember standing in a circle and we were talking about a video project that they were working on at that time. And my heart got happy and my hands got happy. And I'm like, no way, this can't be happening. They were talking about video. I mean, I do video on the side like, oh my gosh, I can do this and I can totally get excited about this. And that for me was confirmation that that was the space I needed to be in in that moment. Oh my God, I love this moment. Like Allison, Allison is a ray of sunshine. And it's so powerful to hear someone's like activism origin story where their passions and their abilities and interests just so perfectly intersect. Absolutely. And so as Allison began working with iGen as a volunteer on top of her job as a nanny, she was interviewing domestic workers, making videos to educate the community and recruit more members. And she loved it. And iGen says the organization was made better because of her. She immediately became someone, she was already someone who had an enormous network, had a lot of people that she, other nannies that would come to her for advice, um, that she would counsel. And so when she signed up for our nanny training and started coming to meetings, others followed. And that's been the case ever since. And that role is essential for such an incredibly isolated workforce. Because domestic work is done primarily in other people's homes, who knows what happens behind closed doors? We see how exploitation manifests itself at a higher rate. We see how wage theft also shows itself at a higher rate. We see how uh, trafficking of domestic workers also ramps up. And you know, Caroline, this kind of exploitation and discrimination is something that you and I are really familiar with here on Unladylike, because it all stems from a little something we call patriarchy. Basically, the male-dominated economy that we have been living in for generations has devalued care in such a way that hurts all women and has always hurt all women. And women of color, then, who have historically done this work as a profession, have then been, as professionals, completely devalued. And in fact, the first women to do this work as work were enslaved, Black women, and not compensated at all. And to understand how we got from slavery to domestic work injustice today, Kristen, you know what we've got to do. Yeah, I do. We've got to unpack the claptrap. Okay, so after slavery was abolished with the Civil War, formerly enslaved women in the South largely transitioned to housekeeping and domestic work. And the proportion of Black women as domestic workers steadily rose throughout the 1900s. Even in the 1930s, when Franklin Roosevelt cut America a quote-unquote New Deal that included all sorts of new labor protections like the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act, domestic workers saw none of the benefits. Yeah, and those are benefits that many of us probably take for granted, like federal minimum wage and overtime, rights to unionize, to collectively bargain, or go on strike. Southern members of Congress refused to support those two bills, and they refused to support equal protections for Black workers um, under the law. And so in a concession to those members of Congress, those laws were enacted with those exclusions in place. Specifically, 
Those racist legislators were afraid that extending minimum wage guarantees to so many Black workers would erode white people's economic supremacy. Even the Civil Rights Act of 1964 overlooked care workers. And honestly, Caroline, when I learned that, I wanted to throw my laptop out the window. Yeah, it's this the is, Civil Rights Act. It's mind-boggling. Come on. So Title VII, y'all know the one, the whole thing about no employment discrimination because of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Oh, that sounds great. But it only applies to employers who oversee at least 15 employees. So probably no dice, domestic workers. And on top of this, the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, yeah, that doesn't sound super sexy, but you know what's even <laughs> less sexy? When you get hurt on the job and you have no federal guarantee for any recourse because OSHA is like, hey, guess what? We don't cover domestic workers just as a matter of policy. Well, and domestic workers are still excluded from OSHA. And so generation after generation of domestic workers has been working in the shadow of that history of racism and defined by that exclusion. It's no surprise then that these women got fed up. Oh, but they were not about to back down. When you feel it, it's shit of God gonna make you act. That's unsung badass Dorothy Bolden from Atlanta GA saying, when you feel it, it's sure to God gonna make you act. In an archival interview from the Atlanta History Center. Dorothy started working as a domestic worker at nine years old, and she went on to found the National Domestic Workers Union of America in 1968. What she and other domestic workers were after wasn't just the fair wages and professionalization of the job. They also wanted dignity and basic respect. Some even tried to rebrand themselves as household technicians just to get folks to take their work seriously. Bolden became a sounding board for her fellow domestic workers. She collaborated with the Urban League and worked with local radio stations to organize across 10 states, eventually garnering 13,000 members for her organization. And in 1974, Bolden, along with Black feminists, labor organizers, and activists across the country, mobilized a successful grassroots campaign that finally won them federal minimum wage, overtime, and Social Security entitlements. You know, just 40 years after everybody else got them. But of course, the work was not over. Live-in domestic workers were still exempt from workplace protections, and Congress also left open this sneaky loophole for casual employers like babysitters and a companionship exemption for essentially like home health aides. So Allison and iGen are essentially carrying the torch of Dorothy Bolden and the countless other domestic workers who've been organizing and demonstrating for better working conditions since before women could even vote in this country. I also love, by the way, that Allison cites Dorothy Bolden as her role model. I know. Allison also finds inspiration in her own family's history with domestic work. For me saying that, I continue to stand on the backs and on the shoulders of my grandma and my mom. Um, my grandma was feisty. She was feisty as hell, but she was feisty at home. And I recognized that even in her workplace, she she was so humble and so sweet. And I remember saying, well, if my grandma was so feisty at home and so humble and sweet at work, like she was still working long hours and not being treated fairly. I didn't want that to be my story, too. 
And I recognized that that was when I needed to do so much more. So the Bill of Rights campaign was the more for me. It was the more of me fighting harder so that domestic workers who were working currently didn't have to work as hard as my grandmother worked or as hard as I had worked in the early 1990s. The Bill of Rights campaign that Allison's talking about here is the first big action that she and Ijen worked on together. Starting in 2003, they began organizing in New York for a domestic worker Bill of Rights, which would grant equal protection to domestic workers under New York State's labor laws. I wanted to be a badass and really just pave the way for sisters who were coming after me because I know our families depend on the work that we do, both the families at home in our home countries, the families at home in our U.S. homes, and the families that we provide care for. Like Dorothy Bolden back in the 60s and 70s, Allison, Ijen, and the other activists organized faith leaders, people who'd been raised by nannies, employers of domestic workers who wanted to do the right thing. And their goal was to show how this issue was connected to everyone. Like Ijen says, care work is the work that makes all work possible. It took seven years, but they succeeded. The Bill of Rights passed in New York in 2010. And it included protection from discrimination and harassment, which did not exist at all beforehand, Um, a guarantee of at least a day of rest per week, um, and also paid time off, which was a really important um, step forward. And that opened the door for more workers to be able to achieve paid sick days in New York City um, and beyond. Now eight different states have passed a Bill of Rights for Domestic Workers. But of course, this movement isn't just about nannies and housekeepers. It's about the people who employ them, too. Next up, we're going to talk about how to ethically hire a nanny. We're back with Ai-jen Poo and Allison Julian from the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And you know, Caroline, there's a whole other part of this conversation that we haven't addressed, and that's how we collectively get to a place where domestic workers are valued for their work, where they get that dignity, where we start caring about the care economy. And spoiler, it involves some uncomfortable acknowledgments. Because for starters... Research supports the idea that having a housekeeper, for instance, makes you happier because buying time for ourselves makes us happier than buying material things. And hell yeah, I'd be happier with more time on my hands. But this dynamic really stirs up some unsettled feminist quandaries of offloading so-called reproductive labor onto other probably less privileged women and all of that gendered and class baggage that comes along with leaving your kids in another woman's care. Plus, there's this whole elephant in the room of the fact that the labor of women of color in these roles has essentially raised white women's standard of living, helped them climb the career ladders. So given all these problematic power dynamics, is it even ethical to be outsourcing our caregiving and domestic labor? 
I think it's great to hire caregivers and domestic workers. You know, sometimes people get guilty around me if they mm-hmm. hire, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, no, no, that's all wrong. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's it. what I care about is that you actually really value and respect the people who are adding so much value to your life. And, um, and that's the point, not whether or not you hire them. And so I really believe, for example, Amy Poehler, um, you know, she, when she was in the Time 100 for the first time, she was asked to give a toast and I watched it on YouTube. Um, I wasn't there, um, but she <laughs> toasted her nannies. And I thought, who besides um, Madam Secretary Clinton and Lauren Michaels have influenced me? <laughs> and it was the women who helped me take care of my children. It is Jackie Johnson from Trinidad, and it is Dawa Chodin from Tibet, who come to my house and help me raise my children. I say thank you, and I celebrate you tonight. And to me, that's, that is what I and what what this movement is about is about recognizing our interdependence and investing in the relationships that make everything else possible for us. Um, I want every one of those people who are picking up that work to be able to live well and to be able to take pride in the work that they do and earn family-sustaining wages and have security and resilience in the economy. And if we can get there, great. (laughs) You know? Oh, Caroline, I love that Amy Poehler speech. I mean, I love everything Amy Poehler, but that speech is fantastic. I know. And and I really love iGen's reality check that, hello, yes, it's obviously okay to hire people to come into your home. But the question that we need to be asking is how to do that responsibly, how to actually make sure that the people in our lives are able to work with dignity. Right. So there are a couple of parts to this. One is the person doing the hiring, and the other is the care worker. And to be honest, all of us are in one of these categories in one way or another, or we'll find ourselves there in our lifetime. Right. So let's start with the employers, the people doing the hiring. Allison says the first thing they can do to start on an ethical path is recognize the reality of their role. Yeah, let's start here. Let's start with, for the parents, moms, I'm talking to you. Listen up clearly. If you haven't yet seen yourself as an employer and there's a nanny, a house cleaner, or a care provider in your home, note to self, you are an employer. Let's start there. That's work. It's work. It's not being a part of the family. We don't want to get this twisted. And employers need to be very clear that they are employers and take the responsibility of employers recognizing that their home becomes someone else's workplace. What would you say to someone listening who thinks, oh, but I don't want to make her feel uncomfortable by bringing up this conversation, kind of not wanting to go there? Where don't you want to go again? She's already in your home, so you ain't going nowhere. (laughs) You're not going anywhere, right? Uh, The worker showed up in your home. Where are you going? Um, (laughs) You're trying to bring out the best in me now, aren't you? (laughs) Okay, so that's number one. See yourself as an employer. Good tip. 
Like it or not, you're the boss, boo. You are the boss. Number two, pay a living wage, people. And this includes paid time off and overtime pay. Right now in the U.S., 70% of domestic workers earn less than 13 bucks an hour, and pay is often even lower for live-in workers. You know, for example, a living wage for a house cleaner is uh, $25 an hour for an independent cleaner who works on her own, and at least $15 for one who works for a cleaning agency or a company that covers some of her other expenses. The organization Hand in Hand actually has great resources on calculating a living wage for where you live and paying different positions, along with information on drafting work agreements and best practices. Which brings us finally to number three, set up clear expectations from the get-go. This is another one that Hand in Hand has tons of resources on, but basically, you need to talk about stipulations for hours and overtime, sick leave, vacations, breaks, and non-child care responsibilities. Yeah, so there was a National Domestic Workers Alliance survey that found that 91% of domestic workers who encountered problems with their working conditions in the previous 12 months did not complain because they were so afraid of losing their job. So make yourself a safe employer to talk to. And Allison says that along the way, it doesn't hurt to actually have, you know, just conversations with the domestic worker in your home. If you don't remember her name because you don't see her that often, maybe she's the house cleaner, Make it your business to meet with her once a month just to see how she's doing, to ask her how her family is doing. It's important when we're working in such close proximity that we're able to treat each other like human beings and not like machines. So that covers the employer side. See yourself as a boss, pay a living wage, and have human conversations. For the nannies and care workers out there, the number one thing you can do to advocate for yourself is know your labor rights. The NDWA and their partner organizations have resources galore to learn all about it. And the last thing that iGen recommends to anyone who identifies as a care worker out there, professional or not, is to value the care work that you yourself are doing and the work you see others doing. Because that small cultural shift is honestly a big part of this movement. I think it really does begin at home. Um, And so I think if you yourself are a caregiver, take care of you. Self-care is a really big part of this. Like, you know, make sure that you take the time to um, rest and do things that um, nourish you and give you energy And then if you have a family caregiver in your life, make sure that you recognize that they're doing that. Say, tell them that you see what they're doing and how valuable it is. And Caroline, ever since we had these conversations with Iogen and Allison a few weeks ago, I keep thinking about them every time I'm doing my household chores, washing the dishes and complaining to myself about how we don't have a dishwasher that works. I mean, this is the kind of everyday stuff that we might take for granted, but that deserves dignity and respect as work. The work that women have historically done to take care of children and family members has just never, ever been recognized or valued or supported. And it has to get done. And (laughs) women are in the workforce in unprecedented numbers. And so basically in a position of trying to, having to figure out without a real 
cultural conversation about this, right? Having to figure it out on our own, how are we going to manage working and our families? And um, and it's it's really an impossible situation. And so that is why I think this moment of women's activism is so exciting, is because what you're finally seeing is women coming together across industry, across community, with women of color really playing a strong leadership role. Allison says she's excited about the future, too, not just because she loves her job, being a full-time activist, working with domestic workers and immigrants like her, but also because she sees real impact from the work she's doing. And I see for the future, like, just workers who are coming into this work not having to work as hard as those who have gone before us and knowing that even if they have to, that they know that there were people who have stood in the trenches fighting for them. And that's what gets me excited about the future of domestic work and the work we're doing. So when I was talking to Aijin, she was very clear about looking down the line and seeing the goal. It's universal family care which is basically the idea that there's one fund that helps working people take time off and afford childcare, elder care, and paid family leave without risk of losing your job. And we know what that can look like uh, because there's an effort to pass universal home care in Maine, and they're working on something similar in Washington State. And in case you need another reason to move to Hawaii, they created the Kapuna Caregiver Program, which is a benefit for people caring for loved ones that helps them pay for expenses like home health care. I just, as an aside, I just want to say that I'm I'm very impressed because I feel like I go home at the end of the day and I just lie down. So <laughs> You're going to have to work on that. I know! <laughs> Caroline, I've got to work on it too. I got to be honest. And if y'all are works in progress like us, you can find all the resources we've mentioned in today's episode over at unladylike.co to find out how you can get involved. And even if you're lying down, you can still follow us on social at Unladylike Media. And listen, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter for actually good news about women in the world. Why am I emphasizing this so much? Well, a shout out in our newsletter is how we got connected to iGen in the first place. So it's super powerful. And you can get it at unladylike.co slash newsletter. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Ginny Ravelet. Special thanks to Peter Clowney, Katie Clarkson, and Twist Audio in Chicago. And we're your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. Next week, we're going halfway around the world to learn about how one woman helped a whole country look at domestic violence differently. What is it that's so wrong about our society that has shifted the blame and the shame is on the victim? You don't want to miss this international edition of Unladylike, so make sure you subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. Allison was pumped. Pump up Alice, the jams and pump it up. Also, was fucking pumped, y'all. <laughs> Stitcher.